Settle down. You're fellowshipping too much. Having too much fun. Don't you know that we had a bad election next week, catastrophic election last week? How can you all be so happy? You think you all had some divine viewpoint or something. Well, I do want to address a couple of things. It's just sort of interesting to watch everything start to unravel right now. And in way, I mean, it just reached a critical mass. And um, I'm going to read a couple of things to you tonight. In terms of announcements, remember, I don't have my cheat sheet up here, so I'm going off of memory. But I think that we're having the uh, church. Is that on the 9th, Karen? Ninth, uh, December the 9th. We're going to have our uh, after church that Sunday morning after our morning worship service. We will have a, a fellowship dinner time to um, focus on Christmas a little bit and some fellowship and prayer. And that's what fellowship is. It's always fellowship around the Lord and around his word. And prayer is certainly part of that. Fellowship in the word is always primarily with the Lord. Thanks, Milton. It's what? Well, that's what happens. One of these days, I've got to get this fixed. I've been, how long have we been here? It, it, in Connecticut, I never had a problem. I could always print whatever I needed from the pulpit immediately, and it's taken us, what, seven years? I still can't print what I need from the pulpit when I need it. One of these days. So I'll just have to read it off of the, uh, off the computer. But... I don't know how many people have worked on it, and it just it never works. I don't know. So, yeah, Jack probably did something. We'll blame we'll blame Jack. Yeah, he's good. He's good for it. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's, pr- let's pray. Our Father, we know that you are the God who has declared the end from the beginning and that you are working out your plan in history. And often what you allow to take place is quite different from what we would love to take place. And it is when what you permit is so distant and negative from what we would love that it's hard for us to get our minds around reality. But yet we know that you allow things to go the way they do because you allow human beings freedom, and you allow them to free the freedom to fail as well as to succeed. And when we choose, and when cultures and nations and societies choose a path that is a rejection of your word and a rejection of truth and a rejection of reality, then the only consequences are those that, that are going to be negative. And there is suffering by association, But in suffering by association, there can also be great privilege and great opportunity for us to witness to the truth and to be faithful to you and to 
uh, face tests that we might not wish, but tests that are going to bring great glory to you. And, Father, we need to have our mental attitude reshaped and refocused to put it on uh, what your plan and purpose is for our lives in the midst of a of a nation that, as Paul described, the generation in which he lived, a wicked and perverse generation. And we are to shine forth his lights, holding firm to the word of life, the word of truth. And so, Father, we pray that we might have the strength and the conviction of truth uh, to do that, that we might be faithful in our testimony. And, Father, as we examine your word this evening, we pray that you would use the example that we see of Peter, that this is a tremendous example to us, that uh, he lived in that same kind of environment, much, much worse than the one we're in, and yet he was faithful. So it's a great example for us, and we pray that we might be encouraged by it. In Christ's name, amen. A couple of things. One thing I want, want to read is a report from an, uh, this came out on Eret Shavah, which is Israel National News. Um, Eret Shavah is a um, pretty decent uh, news source for things going on related to Jews and related to Israel. And the headline of this article is, it's no longer tenable to be a Jew in academics, says this professor. Did you catch that? It's no longer tenable to be a Jew in academics, says this professor. A math teacher at the largest trade union of higher education in the United Kingdom says, quote, it is no longer tenable to be a, a Jew in the UCU, which is the University and College Union, the largest trade union and professional association of higher education for professors, academics, lecturers, and researchers in the U.K. He says the institution has repeatedly singled out Israel for condemnation at its annual conferences and created an intolerant environment in which it is no longer tenable to be a Jew in the UCU. Now, isn't that interesting? Because it's always the left that screams about the intolerance of the right but they're absolutely blind to their own intolerance, especially toward Christians and toward Israel. And it is, it is, the good news is that 10% of the Jewish community in the United States woke up in this last election and realized that, that, um, that they <coughs> could not vote for Barack Obama as president, mostly because he's not a friend to Israel, no matter what he says. And it's so sad how many people in this country can't differentiate between the rhetoric of various groups in this country who say the right thing and they can't get past what they say to look at what they they actually do. And one of the more interesting statistics is that that as people move closer to reality, how it changes their voting record. And American-born Jews who've made Aliyah to Israel that is, American Israeli Jews voted 80% in Israel in polls, voted 80% for, for Romney, whereas in the United States they only voted 32%. CNN says 31%. The Jewish Republican Committee says uh, 32%. So I'll go with their numbers. Uh, 32% voted for Romney. What's the difference between America and Israel as... Um, one writer puts it, uh, <clears throat> it is, uh, you know, Israelis are Republican and Jews are liberal, meaning American Jews 
or, or American Jews or Democrats is how he, he puts that, and uh, that's true. And uh, the problem, though, is a problem of worldview, and when you get to Israel and suddenly you, you're watching the so-called Arab Spring explode around you, and in the last year and a half, or, or year and a half or a little more, you've seen Egypt uh, become dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood, Tunisia dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood, Libya dominated by who knows what. Uh, you've got Syria in civil war, and uh, King Hussein of Jordan is a, a short timer. Eighty percent of the people in Jordan get their paychecks from the Jordanian government. That is a scary figure because that's just a little bit a little bit higher a percentage than what we get in the in the U.S. And I have uh, been told by uh, a uh, sort of second hand by a Jordanian who was in a position to know that the uh, children of King Hussein are not mentally competent to rule the kingdom, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So Jordan, if Jordan falls, if the kingdom of Jordan falls, uh, Israel is, is, that's the longest border that Israel has. Israel is, and, and Jews around the world are, that are waking up are beginning to become quite concerned about where they should go. Because if the UK, and, and the reason that Europe is becoming more anti-Semitic is because they have to pander to the Muslims that are living there and the extreme anti-Semitism that's in the Islamic community. And they're afraid to buck that because the Muslims have become too powerful and the West basically has caved in. They have no guts, no courage, no concept of absolute truth. And that's the problem. And as goes Europe, so goes the U.S. in another, what, 20, 30 years at the most. I think it's shorter than that because we're moving faster than that. We reelected an administration that uses modern Europe as their, uh, as their model. So, uh, this is a very interesting article because it, it, it gives a lot of details as to how, uh, anti-Semitism is operating, uh, in the UK. And then, uh, one of my good Jewish friends, businessman here, after a couple of nights of somber reflection following the election, sent out an email last week, and I reflected upon his reflections, and I wrote the following. Uh, what do we do now? First of all, we have to admit the republic is now dead. There are too many Christians, too many conservatives who I think have been living in self-deception for the last 15 years or so thinking that we can reverse course. I don't think we can. We've reached a critical mass in, because of a worldview shift. There, we're a minority, conservatives, constitutionalists, strict constructionists, as my friend Jeff Atticott always puts it, are a strong minority, but 48% is still a minority, and it's a shrinking minority. So we have to, if we're going to be, re, be honest with reality, we have to admit the republic is now dead. It's been on life support for a long time. But when we face uh, the reality of the judges that Barack Hussein Obama is going to appoint to federal judgeships and the Supreme Court over the next four years, and the impact those lifelong appointments will have on juridical interpretation, it, is, it will radically change this country. 
So with the judges Obama appoints during the next four years, in addition to another 900-plus dictatorial executive orders, the most executive orders any president issued prior to Barack Obama was who? Anybody want to guess? Anybody know? It was George Bush. How many did he? How many executive orders did President George W. Bush uh, execute? You know, sixty something. Nine hundred and sixty something for Obama. We get another nine hundred executive orders. That's just outright uh, tyranny. Those kinds of changes, the judgeship changes and executive orders, uh, will be virtually irre- irreversible. I'm not sure we had the leadership. Even with even with uh, Romney and all of the anti-Obama mentality in the Republican Party, I'm not sure we had the leadership to fully reverse the destruction that was done in the first term. The problem is not the need to change any of the circumstantial issues some of the critics suggest. We need to reach out to the Hispanics or reach out to the blacks or reach out to the women. That, that's not the problem. The problem is foundational. It's, the wor- it's a worldview. Uh, the central problem, the fatal disease of the body politic, is that the worldview of the contemporary culture has been radically shifting away from that of the founding fathers, and it's now reached a critical mass. Only a minority still think in terms of the absolutes that formed the thought behind the Constitution. Only a few today. It may be a big number. It may be a 40 45% number, but it's still less than half. Only a few today still believe in or understand the values that made this a mighty and prosperous nation. Without the spiritual and intellectual foundation, the Constitution becomes a meaningless historical relic. For the constitutionalist, patriotism is virtually an empty shell because the people in power, the people that matter, don't care what the Constitution says. Like Clarence Thomas pointed out when he was speaking to a, a conference in New York in October, or September of 2008, if you're not concerned about the original intent of the authors of the Constitution, then you're just making it up. And that's what we've got, is leaders that are just making it up. And we've got a populace that doesn't care anymore because of the influence of postmodernism on their thinking. So I wonder how anyone who's knowledgeable about our nation's history and loyal to the Constitution can ever say the Pledge of Allegiance again. We pledge to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. That republic no longer exists except in our memories. What meaning has the national anthem? Those words have now become a sham for the flag which once so proudly waved has now become a shroud. How very tragic and sad that the people in this nation have chosen their volition to re-enslave themselves and us to government tyranny. An ancient but unattributed analysis clearly reveals that our nation is in the final cycle of civilization. Sad thing, nobody knows who really wrote this. You've heard people say, well, so-and-so wrote it and -and so-and-so wrote it. They don't know. Nobody knows who wrote this. Man begins his existence in bondage and rises from bondage through spiritual faith and from spiritual faith to courage. Notice the ground of everything else on the ascent is their spiritual faith. That's the focus on doctrine. From spiritual faith to courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy. 
That was the 70s and 80s. From apathy to dependency, that's the 90s and the recent decade. From dependency back to bondage, that's where we are now. Not just any kind of spiritual faith leads to freedom, but only one kind, that based on Hebrew and Christian revelation. Solomon summarized the same principle in Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision, and that word for vision doesn't mean having a dream or a, being a visionary, like having a vision for a company or the future of an organization. It's where there's no acceptance or reception of God's revelation to us in his word. Where there's no vision, the people perish. And the Hebrew word for perish is the people run, it's the idea of running around without restraint. See, the word of God defines boundaries, absolutes, right or wrong. And when that's not there, there are no boundaries. People just do whatever they want to do. It's the period of the judges. Now, the sad thing is none of us want to live in the period of the judges. We want to live in the period of the Davidic monarchy. But when you have a culture around you that's rejected the truth, you're living in the period of the judges or you're living in the period of Ahab and Jezebel, and whether we like it or not and we don't, and, and I'm as optimistic, as more optimistic than the next person. But we have to face reality. I would love to be dead wrong because I don't think we have a culture that has the spiritual focus to recover. And I pray for a revival, a renewal of our thinking. Numerous scholars through the ages, Jewish and Christian, have demonstrated historically that liberty, real liberty, the emphasis on the individual and freedom, came out of Israel, came out of the Bible, came out of the time period after the Exodus. And the application of the eternal truths that are in the, in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and New Testament are what brought liberty. When that was recovered in the Reformation, that is what brought liberty and freedom into the darkness of the medieval, uh, into the Middle Ages of, of Western Europe. God gave mankind the greatest gift of all, which is freedom. But again and again, man has chosen collectively to destroy freedom and to bring in evil and darkness. We can't blame God for giving us freedom. We can only blame ourselves for choosing to throw it away. But there's always hope. See, you didn't think I'd get there, did you? There's always hope. And what a crisis like this does, it drives us to where the real hope is. The hope isn't in the Republican Party. The hope isn't in conservatism. The hope isn't in Mitt Romney. The, the hope is not in a person. The hope is where it's always been, and that is in the truth of God's Word. In, the, in, the, um, in, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a tamarisk in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, a salt land, and not inhabited. But blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, and whose trust the Lord is. And, and my prayer is, and my hope is, that this has been a great election, because it has, I have, I sent this email out to about a dozen people the first day, and I've embellished it and developed it a little since then. And um, I had a good friend of mine who's a, who's a Jewish lawyer here in town email me back. This was Friday, three days after the election. He said, I've been depressed for three days. Now I'm depressed and maudlin. I, about two hours after that, 
one of the ladies I sent this to called me on the phone weeping after she read this because it's so true. And that morning, this is a Jewish lady, friend of my, friend of mine, it's just amazed how many of these unsaved Jewish folks are surrounded by people who came out of Baraka Church and have a doctrinal background. She met this girl about three years ago that she goes running with every morning. The girl's a, a believer. She and her husband came out of Baraka last year when we were doing that Night Honor Israel thing. This uh, Jewish lady was involved with that. She's out running with her with her uh, Christian friend and says, well, I've gotten put on this committee for this Night to Honor Israel by a pastor friend of mine. And this Christian lady says, you got a pastor friend? She said, yeah. I said, who is it? She said, Robbie Dean. Robbie Dean married my husband and me 14 years ago at Baraka Church. The hopes in the gospel. Lamentations. When Jeremiah has, been, has taken out of the land, when he's seen everything destroyed around him, we haven't seen that yet. When everything's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, everything has been, we can't imagine what he went through. And he focuses in that book of Lamentations on what has happened. He doesn't deny it. See, too often Christians live in this la-la world where we don't want to truly, honestly face what's in front of us because somehow we think that'll make us depressed. God doesn't want us to be depressed. Well, look at the Psalms sometime. David was pretty down, but it was by facing honestly the negatives of reality that it drove him to dependency and trust on the Lord. See, if we don't honestly face it and we just say, well, somehow it'll all be good, it's God's will, it'll all work out, the rapture's coming next week, you know, whatever the lie is we tell ourselves, we'll never be able to face the realities of, of life if they get really bad. Jeremiah wrote, My soul has them still in remembrance and is bound down within me. That is, see, that's his depression. He's thinking about Jerusalem and everything. And then he said, But this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. Surely the Lord's mercies are not consumed. Surely his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is a great opportunity for us to really focus on the Lord. It's a great opportunity for Christians who aren't here in Bible class and ought to be to be here in Bible class. It's a great opportunity for people to reorient their priorities because what is, what is going on in, 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 among evangelicals is, is just beyond expression. I sent this out the other day, and I, I wasn't going to do this tonight, but it just dawned on me and that I ought to do this. If I can call this, uh, this was an email from Charlie Clough. And his uh, thoughtful response to what I said, and he said uh, <clears throat> that a lot of the flaw and the fault for this last election goes to evangelical Christians. If you know anything about history, you know anything about Israel's history, one of the things that, that occurred as they're under the fourth cycle of discipline going into the Jewish revolt in the 60s, in AD 60 to, to 70, the, the loyalists, the nationalists, dare I use the term, the conservatives, were fragmenting due to arrogance. Not unlike what we're doing in this country. Because you had some, rather than orienting to a common and uniting around a common enemy, there were a lot of evangelicals. There were six million evangelicals who voted for Barack Obama. There were 
a vast number of uh, uh, that sat out the election. There were at least two million that, that fewer votes cast for uh, Romney than for Obama. Uh, many people who sat back and said, "Okay, well, I got to vote my conscience. I don't like either one, so I'm not going to vote." Well, a, a vote, no vote, is a vote for for the incumbent. It, it usually is. I, I don't care what how what, how you want to paint it. If you didn't vote and you don't like what we have, then by getting it back, you've contributed to it. But Charlie wrote this in terms of what he's seen in the evangelical community. What I've observed traveling around to different churches over the past several years is that in Bible-teaching churches, in quotes, there's a sizable remnant that apparently either haven't been taught, or if they have, they've rejected the teaching. Thus, in Duluth, that's at Duluth Bible Church, after speaking on Gentile and pagan notions of civil government in relation to the function of civil government to preserve the public safety and order, not to confiscate wealth from the haves, to give to the have-nots, someone in the congregation requested a meeting with the elders to condemn my sessions as an illegal intrusion of politics into the pulpit. Now, that is a strong Bible-teaching church up there in Duluth. That is not their view, but somebody in their church didn't want that. I had a similar experience at North Stonington Bible Church, another strong church up near Preston City in Connecticut, involving an upset young man in the parking lot afterwards. In, um, In Tampa, after pointing out that either there exists a transcendent standard over the state or the state is God and the capital punishment is God's will, a lawyer whose wife heads up the anti-capital punishment movement in Florida very emotionally argued with me after the service, and another man tried to challenge my citation from Obama's book that he, that is Obama, rejects absolute truth. In our own chapel, that's the church Charlie attends in uh, Maryland, in our own chapel last Sunday after I pointed to the danger of legally separating the definition of marriage from any connection with the reality of God's image in man and its sexual aspects, the son-in-law of an elder muttered that I was speaking hate speech, got up and walked out of the service. In Wilmer, Minnesota, after pointing out that public education today avoids dealing with the metaphysical and epistemological basis of truth, especially of scientific methodology, a local college faculty member argued that he, uh, he had close faculty friends who were, quote, Christian and, quote, loved the Lord, and fully held to the independent authority of the scientific method separate from anything in the Bible. I experienced a similar thing in an Albuquerque Bible church. So there you have it. A half dozen instances in the last two years of, quote, Bible-believing Christians, unquote, basically hostile to what supposedly is being taught in our Bible church pulpits. When I was pastor and detected that sort of thing, I would go on a virtual campaign of challenging it from every passage of Scripture I could find until they acquiesced or left the church. So to my mind, these experiences confirm my point in the first chapter I've prepared for a forthcoming Tyndale Seminary publication. If the implications of the gospel aren't clear, wise political thinking cannot and will not follow. Did you catch that? If pastors aren't making the implications of the gospel clear, then the people are never going to be able to follow through to the additional steps to understand uh, the implications for, for basically ethics, which is what politics comes from for, for politics. He says, um, 
In most of these type of situations, you'll discover personal compromises that have been made that the people refuse to change. The Duluth man was beholden to his business associates' peer pressure. So I can't, if I go along with what this guy said, then I'm going to come under peer pressure from my partners in business, and I'll be in trouble. Uh, the fellow in North Stonington had a chaotic personal existence. The lawyer in Florida was led around by the nose by his wife. The chapel fellow's sister was a lesbian. The Wilmar College professor was intimidated by academic peer pressure, and the scientist in Albuquerque was a theistic evolutionist and amillennialist in a dispensational premillennial church. I'll wager that these are the kinds of evangelicals who either stayed home or voted for Obama. Gentlemen, it's back to what the colonel always said. Teach the word and teach it so it either straightens people out or they decide not to identify themselves any longer as evangelicals. The folks in the sample above in each case showed a lack of trust in the word of God and a lack of application of the simplest faith rest drill truths in their personal lives. There were no connections between scripture and the critical concepts of business, academics, basis of law, and or family love and discipline. No sense of any framework of truth that encompasses all of life. The implications of the word need to be pointed out or it will remain hidden inside a religious compartment. In the Cold War days, Pastor Thiem made the implications of the word for nationalism versus internationalism clear. In the 60s, when being anti-establishment was in vogue, he came out with the pamphlet Divine Establishment, deliberately and accurately picking a fight with precisely the core idea. Only one doctrine in particular would have helped at least some of the 6.6 million pro-Obama voters evangelical voters, the doctrine of divine institutions. The whole situation also shows the silliness in trying to minimize the gospel, uh, blah, blah, blah. That's irrelevant to what our point. That's what's going on. It's not that it's hopeless, because it's not. As long as we have a, a, a God is on the throne, and he is. It's what are we hoping for? A lot of us, because we've, we've grown up in a prosperous, secure United States, blessed with incredible blessings, don't want to see that slip away. That's what we're holding on to, desperately. But what we have to be holding on to is God and the Scriptures. And we need to be witnessing. We need to be looking at, uh, if we're going to reach out to the Hispanics, we need to reach out with the gospel, not with political conservatism. If we're going to reach out to the feminists, we need to reach out with the gospel. You may get your hand slapped or your face slapped, but you need to reach out with the truth in a loving, concerned, caring, convincing way. We have to be light unto the world. The passage I keep going to back is back there in, in Philippians chapter 2, that we are to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation holding forth the word of life. That's how we shine forth, is we hold forth, we grasp onto the word of life for every ounce of our being. So that is what's going on. And then one other comment related to contemporary events, because it's so much on everybody's mind. I've just quit watching the news. I've gone back to listen to Country Western on the radio, because I don't want to listen to any of the other garbage. And... Um, because everybody got it wrong. There's the only truth is in God's word. But the other last time I kind of got on to everybody because I kept hearing people say, "Oh well, it's God's will." Using that as some tool to just dismiss it and we'll go on with everything because this is God's will and that therefore it must be a good thing. 
The other thing I'm hearing is, well, I just hope the rapture comes soon. Let me tell you, folks, we all hope the rapture comes soon. But you better live as if the rapture is not going to occur till your great-grandchildren are alive and interact with the way things are here today because the reality is there are a lot of, there are millions of Christians, including John Walvoord and Lewis Berry Chafer and Clarence Larkin and uh, C.I. Schofield, and I could go on, but there are, are hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians who have gone to their grave thinking that they would be in the rapture generation, and they weren't. We can't look to the, the rapture is not a panacea for getting out of living in the midst of a horrible world system. The way we live in a horrible world system is to know the Word of God and to use it in every way in our life. And that really is a fitting introduction to what I want to start this evening in this uh, sort of a sub-series in Acts. I pointed this out last time. As we come to the end of Acts chapter 12, we're only going to see Peter one more time, just briefly at the what's known as the Jerusalem Conference in uh, Acts 15. But what begins in Acts 13 is the outreach to the Gentile world. This is the Gentile world of Rome. They lived in the midst of the Roman Empire, which was one of the most pagan uh, pagan cultures in all of history. There were horrible things that went on in Rome. There were some good things. Nothing is totally without some ray of uh, light, some sort of uh, silver, cloud, silver lining. I always like to look at things, little things like that uh, in reverse. Every silver lining has a big black dark cloud. Right? Every, uh, you know, the early bird gets the worm. Yeah, but the early worm gets eaten. Never forget that. So, Peter. Peter and Paul and all of the apostles are living in this hostile environment. They didn't have the wonderful blessings that we've had in this living in the kind of country that we've lived in. We've, li- we've benefited from all that they have taught and all that they did. When they were when they were alive, but they, all the apostles, with the exception of John, died for as martyrs for their faith, and most of them were horribly, horribly tortured before they died. They lost their family, they lost their livelihood, they lost everything but their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what sustained them in all of those dark hours, and we just think that things look dark around us. We don't even have a clue. Just Now, it may get that way, but just imagine what it was like to be a believer, a Plymouth Brethren-type believer living in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. They loved the Jews. They saw what was happening, what that was going to do, and they secretly, many Plymouth Brethren, secretly worked to get the Jews out of, out of Germany. We never know what glorious opportunities we have as believers as as the culture begins to shipwreck. Just We've seen this again and again in history. You go back to the Reformation period. You look at other time periods in British history and American history. When things look pretty dark and you look at other cultures, other times historically, when things when cultures were collapsing and there were strong Christians who were the real basis for hope 
and prosperity, but they didn't get to go home every night and just watch TV or just spend time with their family and with their kids out in the front yard. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We would all love to do that, but we can't sacrifice. We can't sacrifice our focus on reality for what we would like because things have changed. Now, here we have, uh, uh, I'm going to do this as a little sub-series, guys, within uh, within Acts. I want to look at the apostles and what happened to them. God's men, God's mighty uh, choice men that he uh, chose to take the gospel throughout the world. And we'll start with Peter. We'll start with Peter. Peter was a fisherman like his brother Andrew, and he lived in a fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We'll see some pictures in a minute. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee, on the north, slightly northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's first introduced physically, not in a American evangelical slang sort of way. He's first introduced to Jesus, literally physically, by his brother uh, Andrew in the first chapter of John. This does this isn't when he's called to be a disciple, but when he first meets Jesus. Now we pick up the story. If you want to turn there to John one, I'm going to begin reading in John one thirty six. Looking at Jesus as he walked, Jesus is the scene is down on the Jordan. Now the, this. Ha- you know, what happens, like if you went to Israel with us, Barb was there this last year, uh, the Freehoffs were there. We went to a place that's traditionally considered, uh, I mean, for, for centuries, the site of John the Baptist baptizing on the Jordan. It's just been recently opened up. It was in no man's zone on the Jordan between uh, Israel and Jordan for many years, but, but it's a nice site. And, but there's, there's concern about that because Capernaum is a good 60, 60, maybe 70 miles north of there. And the scenario here doesn't fit those big distances. Uh, this is John the Baptist looking at Jesus as he walked. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed uh, Jesus. Then Jesus turned to them and said, uh, seeing them following him, said, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon. So after Andrew meets Jesus, finds out where Jesus is staying, he says, My brother's got to meet him. This is what he's looking for. So he runs home, finds Peter, and uh, says to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, when Jesus first saw Peter, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. You shall be called Kephas. Or the, the, the Greeks didn't pronounce the C like an S. They pronounced it like a hard hard uh, guttural. You shall be called Kephas, which is translated a stone. So that was the Aramaic name, and his Greek name was Petros, or or Peter. And this is when he's first, first, Peter first meets the Lord. Now, Peter is subsequently, we'll look at that in a minute, subsequently chosen to be a disciple. He's listed in Matthew chapter 4 uh, among the disciples, 
but where we really begin to see Peter as as a key spiritual leader that rises to the surface among the disciples is in Matthew chapter 16. So turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is has gone to the north, the area of Caesarea Philippi, chapter 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is north of the Sea of Galilee, almost at the northern extreme of, of the land of Israel. It's not very far from the city of Dan. Historically, in the Old Testament, the north-south boundaries of Israel were always expressed as from, um, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the, in the south. And so Dan is at the northern extremity right near Mount Hermon. So uh, Matthew 16, they go to uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Well, who do men... Here we have, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, if you look at the uh, little backdrop there, they had this interesting little thing there at, um, at Caesarea Philippi that you can barely make this out in the upper corner. It is a steel cone that has etched in it the, the, this uh, verse, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 16 down through 8, 19. And it rotates across across this sand base so that when it rolls across the sand, it smooths it out. And the letters that you see printed there uh, ever so faintly up on the screen are Matthew 18, 16. And it's kind of a cool thing there because the sand comes from a rock which has been pulverized. So it's an interesting little uh, play on the verse that they put into that. Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, that term, Son of Man, as we've studied, comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It is a term for the Messiah. So Jesus is clearly making a a messianic claim in just the way he's asking the question. And so his disciples answer, and they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. By this time, John's been executed, beheaded. Some say you're John the Baptist and brought back to life. Some say you're Elijah. And others, your Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's saying, who do you think I am? After you've been spending the last couple of years with me, who do you think I am? Simon Peter answered. Now, Peter was always the first one to talk. He had a hard time holding back. He was impulsive, and that got him in trouble a lot of times. But this is one time when he's not getting himself in trouble. And he identifies Jesus and you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He nails it. You are the Messiah. You are Hamashiach, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus answered and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't get this from... Uh, empiricism, you didn't get this from rationalism, you got this because of divine revelation. Not because God revealed it to him on the spot, he had a blinding flash of the obvious uh, in terms of a spiritual, mystical insight, but because he's focused on the Word. He understands what the revelation of the Old Testament says, and he's seen that Jesus fits what the Old Testament prophecies have said. That's why he, how it is revealed to him by the Father. And then Jesus says, 
And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, this is a really interesting little backdrop because it's important to understand some of the uh, geography of the area there at Caesarea Philippi. This is in the north of the land, and there was a temple to, to the Greek god Pan uh, there it, at Caesarea Philippi, and this is an artist's depiction of what it looked like. And if you look at the lower left, you see the main temple there on the lower left, and you can see that it's built in front of a huge opening in the rock face. Now, understanding that rock escarpment in the background is important for understanding the play on words here on the name rock, because the, Peter's name, Petros, uh, talks is a, a ledge or a pebble or something that's been broken off. Jesus will say on this rock, and he shifts to a different word and from a, na- a masculine noun to a feminine noun, and it's Petra, and Petra refers to a large, immovable, solid, rock-faced escarpment. That's what's in the background. So Jesus is not only playing off on the words, He's standing in here in this location and playing off of this, this particular location. Now, the cave entrance that's behind that temple on the left, I'll just read this to you. This is the sign that they put up there at that location. This cave is the nucleus beside which the sacred sanctuary for Pan was built. When the P goes into... Arabs can't say P, the letter P, so they let, say the letter B instead. And so rather than being the location for the worship of Pan, it became Ban. And so this area is known as Banyas, B-A-N-E-A-S. So they, uh, in this abode of the shepherd god, pagan cult began as early as the 3rd century BCE. That's before Christ for the rest, for the Christians. The ritual sacrifices were cast into a natural abyss reaching the underground waters at the back of the cave. If the victims disappeared in the water, this was a sign that the god had accepted the offering. If, however, signs of blood appeared in the nearby springs, the sacrifice had been rejected. So this uh, opening there is the gates of hell. So when Jesus is talking in the verse, what does he say? On this rock, that is on this immovable rock, he's alluding to himself in that statement, by the way. We'll see that in a minute. He says, on this rock, that is on himself, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. See, that hole is the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so here we have the gates of Hades, and then here we have two lone shepherds trying to you know, fight their way out of the gates of hell. That's Pastor Dan Ingram there on the right. So, one of my favorite pictures. So Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter. You are Petros on the left. Peter is a small broken rock, a broken off piece of rock. You're just a chip off the rock. You're just a pebble, easily crushed. The, the, the circumstances on life can roll over you, and you're depressed and despondent and you feel hopeless and helpless and down because of whatever the situation is, but for us it's the election. He says, we're all that way. That is us in our, that's why we love Peter. Peter is so human. 
He talks before he thinks. He, he boasts about what he's going to do, and then he doesn't carry it out. He, is, he, he has a great heart, but he, he's, he can't always pull it off. He's just like most of us identify with him in all of his failures and all of his humanity. Because we're like Peter. We get out there walking on the water and looking at Christ, and we're doing great, but then all of a sudden we take our eyes off of Jesus and we look at the waves coming up, and then we start sinking. We focus too much on the circumstances. And all these different miracles and things that happen with Peter are just, just a great illustration, but the walking on the water is, is one, of the, one of the best because that's how we are. As soon as the circumstances turn a little bit unfortunate, as soon as our circumstances start getting a little bit rugged, we get the eye, our eyes on the circumstances, and oh, it's helpless, and oh, there's nothing we can do. As long as we can preach the gospel, we've got all that we need because it's the gospel that changes the hearts of men. It's the gospel that changes cultures, and it's only the gospel that's going to strengthen anyone to, to be able to understand why you don't want to opt out for slavery and uh, a, a nanny government to take care of you. So Jesus says, you are Peter, this easily crushed pebble. And on this rock, that is on a Petra, on this immovable rock, and he's alluding to this identification Peter has just made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's on that reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that he will build his church. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades no matter what any human kingdom may do, and they will rise and fall. And if, you, if I had time, I would put up here a chart on the, the kingdoms of Daniel. They start with the head of gold and go down to the feet of iron and clay. Human kingdoms are on the descent, folks. They're, they're going from great gloriousness to, to that which is mundane and that which is common. And, but it's all on a negative trajectory. So the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give, notice Jesus is talking in the future tense here. I will give in the future the keys of the kingdom of heaven. See, he gives that to Peter and the other apostles when he ascends to heaven and transfers the authority from his physical body to the body of the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. That's how that should be translated. It's a perfect participle. And this comes out of a uh, this verbiage for bind, to bind and to loose was, uh, was uh, an idiom in rabbinical decision-making. Basically, basically, these aren't terms for what, whatever you choose, say will be saved will be saved, and whatever is lost is lost. It's basically saying whatever you choose, the decisions you make will reflect the eternal absolutes of the Supreme Court of Heaven because that is the mission that's been given you. You represent the heavenly court. And so whatever whatever decisions you make as you go forward establishing the foundations of the church, that's Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, whatever you do is going to be the outworking of an already established plan of God. And so let's go on to verse uh, 6 and 7. Therefore, uh, excuse me, I popped ahead. Uh, So Matthew ends up, he's saying, I will 
build my church in the future. All of this is in the future. There has been no church up to this point. The church doesn't be, this is one of those great verses to show the church doesn't begin until Acts 2. Well, Peter understood that he wasn't talking about him, about Peter. He understood that Jesus wasn't talking about uh, something else, but that Jesus was talking about himself because in 1 Peter 2, 4, he says that uh, we come to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones in that building that Jesus is building, uh, it's the, that's the metaphor of the construction of the church, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, Peter said, it's also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus is that chief cornerstone. He's the cornerstone that the builders rejected, but God accepted. Now, Peter was a fisherman. Peter lived in a, in a village on the Sea of Galilee, and he and his brother Andrew had a fishing, built, built, uh, fishing business. They were commercial fishermen, and they were, uh, their, their, their village and their house was the center of Jesus, many things that Jesus did in his ministry in the village of Kephar Nahum. Now, we pronounce it Capernaum, but in the Hebrew, it's Kafar Nahum, which is the village of Nahum. And it's thought that this is Nahum the prophet. And when you come there, there's a sign telling you what's there. It was the town of Jesus. It's the, got the, they've identified the house of Simon Peter. And then there's a second century synagogue that was built on the first century synagogue, which is the synagogue where Jesus first uh, spoke in, recorded in Luke 4. Just to give you an idea of its location here, this is uh, looking at Kafar uh, Nahum, that's this area here from uh, out at the Sea of Galilee. A couple of other shots uh, coming towards it, and then this gives you an aerial. This is the kind of the administrative building for the archaeologists and the administrators and the Catholic uh, church fathers who uh, watch over the site. This is a modern Catholic church, I think it was built back in the 60s, that is actually uh, built over the site of Peter's home from the first century. Now people go, well, how do you know that? Well, we know that because there's graffiti from worshipers that can be dated back to the late first century and early second century, identifying that particular house as a site of pilgrimage and, and veneration, and as soon as it became legal to build a church there uh, in the uh, fourth century after uh, uh, Constantine, they built a church there. And this is uh, un- that the uh, foundation of that ancient church is underneath. That's why that uh, Roman Catholic church has been elevated above the ground. And here you see this octagonal wall. This dates back to the time. This outer wall dates back to the time of Constantine, but inside that, down in this inner area, you have the uh, ruins and the walls going back to at least a first century dwelling. So when I take folks over to Israel, I talk about the fact that you go to, you sort of have uh, things on a scale of one to four. Uh, one, we're, we're 95 to 100% sure this is where it happened. The lake of the, the Sea of Galilee, 
That's a Sea of Galilee. That's a one. Um, the Temple Mount is a one. I think the um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is a one. Church of the Nativity is a one. When you get to other places, like you'll go here and you go to, uh, they'll point out a mount where there's a, uh, a church built that's where Jesus fed the 5,000. Yeah, that's a four, maybe even a five. <laughs> that's just pure tradition, no historical. I mean, all the scripture says is Jesus went up on a mountain. It could be any one of 10 dozen right in that location. So how do we know it was that one? We don't. So there are a lot of those kinds of things. But this has tremendous historical attestation. It's a one. And that always surprises people. Uh, but they have found that this graffiti is, is uh, it's just amazing that they found some, the different things that they have found in scriptural edu- uh, information that's, that supports that. So it's um, a very interesting site. Now, in Matthew 4, we record the calling of Philip, I mean of Peter. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Peter. Now, this is after the events of John 1. And <clears throat> Andrew's bro- Simon, Peter and Andrew, uh, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, one of the great businesses going out of Tiberias is all these boats that go out. It looks like a fleet leaving the the harbor every morning as they take the tourists out for their little uh, boat trip on the Sea of Galilee. But it's it's really kind of neat. You know, that's kind of kind of thing that you go, mm. but I've had, a, I, I'm surprised how many people who go, who this is one of the high points. It's quiet. You can see everything around the Sea of Galilee. You can see the heights of uh, the Golan Heights off on the east. You can see uh a lot of these different sites around Capernaum going up to Bethsaida up in the north, you can see all that. It gives you a great perspective. And a lot of Jesus' ministry was around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's, uh, it's always uh, quite, uh, quite good to go there. So Jesus calls Peter uh, from there, and there are a lot of things that happened from Peter's home. I'm just going to read some quickly to you. Uh, this was the site where Peter and Andrew lived. Uh, he, Jesus uh, stayed there. He also, it seems, had a house, either rented or bought it in uh, Capernaum where, where Jesus lived. That was his permanent home. Uh, in the home of Peter, he healed his mother-in-law in uh, Mark chapter 1. Uh, afterward, he, Mark 1, uh, 35, records that uh, Jesus stayed there and stayed in their home. And the next day when he got up, people had surrounded the home because they wanted uh, their the, their loved ones who were sick or lame or demon-possessed to be healed. And so they surround Jesus, and he um, heals many. In, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1 of Mark, again, he entered Capernaum. That's Jesus after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. And you can see how these are sort of like shotgun homes uh, that we have here. You know what a shotgun home is. It's a long, narrow home, one room after another. It's not built out left to right. It's built out from front to back. And to go through the house, it's only one room wide, and you go through the living room and then the kitchen and then the bedroom and then another bedroom and then out the back. Well, these are sort of like that. So Jesus is back in the back, and all these people are pressing in to to be healed, 
And that's when these uh, men who brought this uh, paralyzed man decide that the only way to get to the back room where Jesus was is to get up on the roof and then to go to the back, dig up the thatching, and then drop down into the room, lower the uh, the um, uh, paralyzed man who's uh, who's on some sort of pallet down into that room. And this is where Jesus uh, forgives him uh, and then heals him. Uh, he taught the Sermon on the Mount very close to here. He met with his family. They come looking for him. They think he's lost his mind, Mark 3.31. He uh, embraced a child in chapter 9 to teach humility there. Uh, many things happened uh, right around uh, Capernaum. This was where Peter lived. Peter had a uh, strong personality, as I've noted. He, uh, his faults were pretty obvious to most of us, so we can relate to him. He's not too modest. But he certainly is assertive, and he is loyal, but he's sort of loyal to a fault, the fault of betrayal. He's got leadership potential, we see in the Gospels, but it's not until he gets the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost that we really see Peter blossom. Peter's the one who preaches on, on, uh, in Acts 2 preaches again in Acts 3. He and John are the only two disciples mentioned in the first part, first four or five chapters of Acts. No no other disciples are mentioned. He's the key leader who God chooses to take the gospel to the Gentiles with Cornelius, which is something that we have just read. So God clearly chose Peter for a leadership role. But He's transitioned out. We don't hear anything more about him after Acts chapter 15. So what happened to Peter? Well, Eusebius, who lived in the 4th century, he was one of the bishops from Caesarea who went to the uh, Council of Nicaea that Constantine called, where they wrote the Nicene Creed in, uh, in 325, wrote a church history, the earliest extant church, church history that we have, and he tells us that Peter left Jerusalem and Judea, and moved north to Antioch. Now, we don't have any mention of Peter in the Antioch church in the Scriptures other than in Galatians chapter 2. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about Peter coming to, uh, coming to Antioch. And, when, and it's not very complimentary because when Peter came to Antioch, uh, he decides he's not going to eat with the Gentiles. He's going to uh, segregate himself uh, with the uh, uh, Orthodox, Orthodox Jews. Uh, Galatians 2.11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, now that's not a permanent stay, but from there, while Paul's on his missionary journeys, what we don't hear is that Peter is on his missionary journeys, and Peter is going out to, well, there's uh, Galatians 2.9, uh, which talks about uh, the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, John, James, Peter, and John. Galatians 2.11, Peter in Antioch. Well, we, if you read 1 Peter, he writes to the churches that are in this uh, area of Bithynia and Pontus. This is the uh, area on the northern uh, part of modern Turkey, which is the uh, south shore of the Black Sea, Cappadocia, uh, Cilicia. These areas are not areas that the Apostle Paul uh, went to. So those were areas that Peter went to. So apparently Peter leaves uh, Jerusalem, goes up. He's in Antioch for a while, has a base perhaps, goes up there. There's a tradition that he was a leader of the church in Antioch uh, for a period of time, and then he heads east. 
It's not on this map. It's not on this map either, but that gives you a little better look at those uh, 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 Roman provinces there in modern Turkey. But off to the east is Babylon. Babylon is the location from whence he uh, uh, writes First Peter. It's the second largest Jewish community outside of Jerusalem. It's the, the they it's the diaspora. They haven't gone back to um, uh, back to the land. They have a tremendous Jewish community there until the 20th century, and and uh, so Peter goes there, preaches the gospel, and from there he eventually goes uh, goes to Rome. And I know I'm running over time, but I want to read this well, uh, as we wrap up. He goes to Rome. There's also evidence that he went to Britain. And I don't know how much of this is tr- just tradition or how much is uh, is really documented, but there are some various uh, statements a couple, two or three centuries later, unfortunately, uh, indicating that uh, there was a, a belief, a tradition that Peter had come to uh, come to Britain. There is a there was a, a monument in Whithorn in Britain that had a tablet that had an inscription that read, "This is the place where Peter the Apostle came." There's another place um, uh, near um, near 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 London uh, where they found. Uh, statement is made that this is the first church dedicated to Peter was founded by King Lucius, the British king, who was the first by royal decree to proclaim Christianity, the national faith of Britain, in Winchester in A.D. 156. And they erected a church there in 179. So this is uh, not certain, though. Too much of this is based on, on legend. But eventually Peter went back to Rome and Nero had him imprisoned in the uh, and, and and tortured before he was uh, executed. And I wanted to read a little bit about the description of his of what took place there. Uh, this is written by a French church historian, Jean Danelou about Peter's time in Rome. He said, um, He was maliciously condemned and cast into the horrible fetid prison of the Mamertine dungeon. There for nine months, in absolute darkness, he endured monstrous torture, manacled to a post. Never before since has there been a dungeon of equal horror. Historians write of it as being the most fearsome on the brutal agenda of mankind. Over 3,000 years old, it is probably the oldest torture chamber extant the oldest remaining monument of bestiality of ancient Rome, a bleak testimony to its barbaric inhumanity steeped in Christian tragedy and the agony of thousands of its murdered victims. It can be seen to this day with the dungeon and the pillar to which Peter was bound in chains. I'm not sure of that just because I haven't studied it out. Uh, this dreaded place is known by two names in classical history. It is referred to as Gemonium, or the Tullian Keep. In later secular history, it is best known as the Mamertine Dungeon. At this time, it is not out of place to pause in our story to describe this awesome pit, if only to provide us who live so securely today with a slight reminder of what the soldiers of Christ suffered for our sake, so we may be quickened the better to appreciate the substance of our Christian heritage. 
The Mamertine dungeon is described as a deep cell cut out of solid rock at the foot of the capital, consisting of two chambers, one over the other. The only entrance is through an aperture in the ceiling. The lower chamber was the death cell. Light never entered, and it was never cleaned. The awful stench and filth generated a poison fatal to the inmates of the dungeon, the most awful ever known. Even as early as 50 B.C., that's 100 years before Peter died, the historian Sallust describes it in the following words. In the prison called the Tullian, there is a place about 10 feet deep. It is surrounded on the sides by walls, and it is closed above by a vaulted roof of stone. The appearance of it from the filth, the darkness, and the smell is terrible. No one can realize what its horrors must have been a 100 years later when Peter was imprisoned in its noisome depths. In this vile subterranean rock, the famed Jugurtha was starved and went stark raving mad. Uh, Verincterix, the valorous Druidic Gaulish chieftain, was murdered by the order of Julius Caesar. It is said that the number of Christians that perished within this diabolic cell is beyond computation. Such is the glory of Rome. Nero, publicly announcing himself as the chief enemy of God, was led on in his fury to slaughter the apostles. Paul is therefore said to have been beheaded at Rome, Peter to have been crucified under him, and this account is confirmed by the fact that the names Peter and Paul still remain in the cemeteries of that city even to this day. But likewise, a certain ecclesiastical writer, Caius by name, who was born about the time of Zephyrinus, bishop of Rome, disputing with Proclus, the leader of the Phrygian sect, this would be in mid-2nd century, gives the following statement about where the apostles were buried. He says, But I can show the trophies of the apostles, for if you will go to the Vatican or to the Ostian Road, you will find the trophies of those who have laid the foundation of this church and that both suffered martyrdom about the same time. Dionysius, the bishop of Corinth, bears the following testimony in his discourse addressed to the Romans. Thus likewise you, by means of this admonition, have mingled the flourishing seed that had been planted by Peter and Paul at Rome and Corinth. For both of these have planted us at Corinth, likewise instructed us, and having in like manner taught in Italy, they suffered martyrdom about the same time. So, when you think about nine months, Peter's in the Mamertine dungeon. Sort of whatever suffering, whatever hardship we face pales in comparison to what they went through because of their love for doctrine and their love for the word, because it's true. We have to change our thinking to conform to truth and not just to conform to what we would like it to be. Father, we thank you that we have your word to go to, that your mercies are new every morning and they fail not. And great is your faithfulness. Father, we pray that we might not be discouraged, we might not be depressed or overcome looking at negatives in terms of our culture, but that we might see these as just tremendous opportunities to stand firm, to have our light shine even brighter against the backdrop of the ever-encroaching darkness. And, Father, though, we do not like to live in the darkness. It's, it's always been there, and it will always be there. And we have always lived in the backdrop of this darkness, even though there was a, uh, a pseudo-light there that had us a little distracted for a while. But, Father, we know that only in the light of your word can there be real hope, 
and that there can be real, a real answer to the dilemmas of life. And we pray that we might have the fortitude, the endurance, the steadfastness to stick with the word and not to give up, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, we are here representing your eternal kingdom to the world around us, and we are the only ones that have the answer. And we pray that we might have the courage to boldly proclaim that answer. In Christ's name, amen.